Amen. Thank you, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. We are making our way through the book of Daniel, and because of time limitations, we're only going to go through chapter 6 this summer. And so this is our last message in the book of Daniel. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. These are, for some of us, very familiar stories. Some of us are hearing these stories for the first time. But the main thing that we have discussed in looking at the book of Daniel is looking at it through the lens of understanding that Daniel is the historical account of God's people living as aliens and pilgrims in a faraway away land. We know that the nation of Judah was taken into captivity into Babylon, modern-day Iraq, uh, and they were taken there against their will, but they were taken there as an act of judgment because of their disobedience before the Lord. But even while they were away from a home that they were familiar with, that they trusted or that they knew, and they were being asked to worship false gods and foreign deities, they held true to their convictions, partly because they remembered who they were. What you and I have drawn from this as the church in 2016 is we too recognize that we, if you're a child of God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you too are an alien and a pilgrim living in a foreign land. We are aliens and pilgrims living in American exile because we recognize that this world is ultimately not our home. Our home is ultimately in the presence of our king under his rule and reign, the reign of Jesus. What we're going to look at this morning is the fact that by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is 85 years old. Old. Daniel came to Babylon as a teenager. Decades have passed, and we're going to watch how Daniel, in many ways, finishes his life. As you'll see from the story, this Daniel is not going to die in this passage of Scripture. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is, this is the last historical account we have of Daniel in the Bible. And what I want you to notice is Daniel is going to finish well. And as we watch Daniel finish well, I believe there's insight that you and I need to glean for our lives into how we can finish well. The reason I say that is because it's important to remember that if you're a child of God, God has not just saved you from something. God has saved you for something. God did not just save you from sin, though he did that. If you know God, if you know Christ, he saved you from the penalty of your sin through his Son, Jesus Christ, taking your place on the cross. But God then also saves us for something. He saves us for a whole new life, a new identity that we're called to live out. And that identity we're called to live out, that Christ-centered identity, and part of which is being an alien or pilgrim, is lived out recognizing that we're called to live by faith and not by sight. The new life that God gives us is that we're called to live by faith and not by sight. Can I tell you the challenge with faith? It doesn't come natural to us. Can I tell you what comes natural to us? What comes natural to me a lot of times is worry. What comes natural to me sometimes is doubt. What comes natural to me sometimes is comparing myself to my neighbor across the street. He may look like they have it easier than me. That's what comes natural to me. What God has called us to, though, is to live a life of faith, to run a race, not just a lap, not just a couple laps. God has called us to live our entire lives with this kind of faith. 
So when we come to Daniel chapter 6 and we watch Daniel finish well, part of what I want us to get from this this morning is that in this life that God's called us to live by faith, we have to recognize that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Would you take your Bibles in Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and would you stand with me to your feet as we honor the reading of God's Word? The reason we stand is because every time we read the Bible, is as if Jesus is speaking to us here, and I'm convinced that if Jesus was here speaking to us, we would be standing in honor of what he had to say. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, we read these words. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, counselors and governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is God's word, church. This is his holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Would you pray with me, please? God, we give you thanks that we have this time together to look at your word. God, I pray that you would remove distractions, you would illuminate our minds to understand, and soften our hearts to receive your truth. God, would you help us in these moments to not just be hearers of your word, would you help us be doers as well? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. So, by the time we come to Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, a new king is on the throne. You'll remember that when Daniel first came into exile, it was the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq, that was in charge. But in chapter 5, the Persians, modern-day Iran, come in and defeat the Babylonians. And they establish their rule and reign over most of the known world at the time. They were a great world superpower. This king that was in charge at the time was named Darius. And he begins to take things in hand and organize his kingdom accordingly. And he puts 120 satraps, that's the word that's used in the Bible. That's a term for a governor or an official, who were over all the regions of the kingdom. 
Their primary job, of course, was to collect revenue, taxes. Yes, they had taxes back then, just like we have today. And their job was to make sure that the king suffered no loss. But because there was so much going on, the king also had a layer of government above these governors. There were three that made sure all of these 120 governors and their regions functioned appropriately. Daniel, who we've been reading about this entire time, was one of the three. Daniel, in fact, starts to do his job so well, it's so obvious that God is working in and through him, that Darius the king plans to promote Daniel. It's probably likely that King Darius had heard stories about Daniel from Babylonians that were still there, that he had interpreted dreams, that he even had predicted the demise of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel had done all those things. And so all those things come together, Daniel begins to move up the ranks and is going to be promoted. The challenge is some of Daniel's contemporaries, some of the people that were next to him in line, were not happy that he was going to be promoted and they weren't. And so they begin to put together a plan to try to sabotage Daniel's rise to power. They begin to put a file together on Daniel. They begin to look at his business dealings, his leadership, his ethical dealings with other people. And the problem is, is that they build this file. They can find no fault with Daniel. They can find no glaring issue with which they could harm him. And so they decide that the only way to get at Daniel is to attack him and his faith. They decide that the only thing that we can find, the only chink in the armor that Daniel's uncompromising on that maybe a something we could exploit is his belief and trust in God. So these rivals, these contemporaries that are jealous of Daniel come to the king. And they say, king, we want you to pass a law that would say that for the next 30 days, no one can pray to any other God or person except you. Now, in this moment, the king has really no idea what they're up to. He doesn't understand why they're doing what they're doing. What he hears is, I'm sure his ego is being stroked, his pride is being stoked. And he says, here's a way for my subjects to remember that I'm the one who provides for them and takes care of them. And so he gets his royal pen out and he signs the edict and it goes into effect. What we've seen, both with the Babylonians and the Persians is that whether knowingly or unknowingly, government can and oftentimes will be used to target people of faith. We've seen it, in fact, if, if you even go out from the book of Daniel, even to the book of Exodus with the nation of Egypt, when the nation of Israel is in exile in Egypt, the, the Egyptian government begins to enact legislation to try to limit and control and harm the nation of Israel. You fast forward to the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. He tries to indoctrinate these Jewish youth with new names and new ways of eating to, to help them forget their Jewish identity and embrace a Babylonian one. Nebuchadnezzar even goes so far as to build a statue and, and enacts legislation that says, if you don't bow to this, you'll be killed. And now we fast forward even to the Persians and, and Darius, though unknowingly, is enacting legislation that's attacking and targeting people of faith. Here's why this is important for me and you, church, okay? In exile, as the church living in a foreign land, which is what we're doing, we have to recognize that oftentimes governments can and will target people of faith. 
It's important to not be surprised when governments that are not under God's, uh, they're not trying to follow the laws and the rules of God's word, they're not trying to seek to submit to them in any way. It's not surprising to us when we watch them enact legislation that targets and harms people of faith. The reason that's important for you and for me this morning is what we have to recognize is that as aliens and pilgrims, we have a responsibility to engage in the political process. But here's the distinction I want to make to you this morning, church. We have a responsibility to engage in, but not hope in, politics. We have a responsibility to engage in, but not hope in, politics. And by engage, I mean to think, to pray, to study that if you're going to pull the lever on a person, that you're informed about what you're pulling the lever for. But that where our investment in the political world stops is we do not give them our hope. We do not long to be fulfilled by the government, in case you haven't figured that out yet. We don't long and expect to be satisfied by legislation and what it can offer us. Because I, I want to be honest with you, a lot of times when we end up very subtly putting our hope in a politician or in an election, is what we're really saying is, I hope my life stays comfortable and easy. If we're not careful, many times the reason my hope ends up resting on a politician is I want my 401k, I want my stuff to be there when I get back home the next day. What I want to remind us of, whether you're a Christian, you're not a believer, you're just here listening, checking things out, the only one that will ever satisfy us is Jesus. The only one that we can really place our hope in is Christ. Because it is Christ and Christ alone that satisfies the longings of our heart and the problem of our sin. So here's the deal. Again, Daniel finds himself in the position, what am I going to do? I'm being asked to violate what I believe to be God's word, that I'm to pray to him and him alone. What am I going to do? Daniel has a perilous decision to make, and I want you to watch in verse 10 what he decides to do. Look at verse 10. Look how Daniel remains faithful. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel decided that he would obey God rather than the king. I've said this before. What we're seeing is courage lived out. Real courage is faithfulness to God no matter the cost. Real courage is not some Braveheart-esque kind of machismo where you've got a sword in one hand and an axe in another. No, real courage is faithfulness to God no matter the outcome, no matter the cost. And so what Daniel is doing with his window open, did you notice that? The window is open. He's not hiding. He's not off someplace by himself. He's out there for people to see. He's saying, I'm going to obey God rather than man. And it costs Daniel. Because there are people that see him praying. The very people that put this legislation together to try to trap him, to stop his ascension to power, they find him, they see what he's doing, and they run quickly to the king and say, King, 
You remember that law that you passed a little while ago? Yeah, well, Daniel, your boy, who you want to promote, he's disobeying you. He's praying to his God rather than to you. And it's in that moment that the king realizes what he's done, right? It's only then that the king goes, oh my goodness, that's why you did this. You were trying to trap Daniel. He didn't see it till then. So the king spends the whole day trying to figure out, how can I get Daniel out of this mess? How can I deliver and save Daniel from the problem that he's in? But it's to no avail. He signed the law. There was no loophole that could be found. And so these rivals come back to the king at the end of the day and say, King, you signed the law. Are you going to make good on what you said you were going to do? The king regretfully agrees. He has Daniel arrested. And then in verse 16, we see Daniel's fate being carried out, his sentence being carried out. I want you to watch how Daniel's sentence is carried out and how God ultimately redeems and restores him. Look at verse 16 and watch how this plays out. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, says, as Daniel's being thrown in this pit with lions, he says, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Verse 17, and then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signets of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So did you get that scene? Daniel is thrown into probably what was a pit-like setup with lions whose sole occupation was for you to meet them so they could help you meet your maker. That's why they were there. Probably starved to the point that any time any person entered that, they would absolutely destroy them. The king has a stone rolled over the mouth of this cave and puts his signet ring to say no one can move or touch this. You know what's interesting to me? The Bible tells us that that night, the king had a hard time sleeping. He tossed and turned. What's interesting to me about that is if you read the story and you compare Daniel and the king... 
and you ask this question, who slept better, Daniel with lions or the king in his palace, it was Daniel. The king was restless. He couldn't sleep because he was worried for his, his friend and this person he was ready to promote. And so at the break of day, he runs to the cave. He runs to the pit and he calls out and asks if Daniel is there. And of course, Daniel is safe and sound. And <clears throat> Daniel tells him that he's been delivered because God sent an angel to close the mouths of the lions. As soon as Daniel's brought to safety, the, the ones who accused Daniel were thrown into the lion's den and destroyed. And upon that destruction, Darius the king declares the praises and the goodness of God. Now here's the question, church. How did Daniel finish so well? The Bible tells us very clearly that the reason Daniel was protected was because he trusted in his God. How did Daniel, for decades, decades, different administrations, different kings, how did he remain faithful through those times? Here's the key, I think, to finishing well. And the key to finishing well that we see in the book of Daniel is a slow and steady faith. The key to finishing well is a slow and steady faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever heard the story of the tortoise and the hare? Raise your happy hand if you've ever heard that story. Okay, most of you have. The story of the tortoise and the hare is the story of two animals that are in a race. But by all estimations, the rabbit, the hare, is faster than the tortoise, who's a turtle. The rabbit's built for speed, whereas the turtle's built for some other purpose, right? Not for speed. Got a shell, harder, slower. But they have this race. And as the rabbit takes off, he quickly speeds ahead and looks over his shoulders and recognizes that the turtle's way behind. And so he says, you know what? I've got such a lead. I'm so far ahead. I'm going to kind of go off on the side of the road and take a nap, right? Guess remember the story? And as the rabbit's taking a nap, what's the turtle doing? Slowly, steadily moving towards the finish line. So that when the rabbit wakes up from this first nap, he realizes, oh no, the turtle's ahead of me. And so he gets back on the road and he charges ahead of the turtle to where, again, he looks back behind him and he realizes, this guy is way in the distance. I can't even see the turtle anymore. And so again, he pulls off to the side of the road and takes a nap. But as the turtle slowly but surely moves towards the finish line, by the time the rabbit wakes up from his nap and tries to find the turtle, he sees that the turtle is already at the finish line. Try as he might, get back on the road and run as fast as he can. He can't reach the finish line before the turtle has slowly, steadily plodded along across the finish line. And of course, the moral of that story is that slow and steady wins the race. Friends, what we are called to is a slow and steady, a tortoise-like faith. Now, please don't misunderstand. When I say slow, I don't mean casual. I don't mean laid back, just doing whatever I want. I mean constantly moving forward, but a recognition that our faith is not always going to be flashy. Our faith is not always going to be filled with euphoric experiences. I'm concerned that some of us may have it in our minds that what real faith looks like is emotion. That what real faith looks like are these moments of euphoric experience where we have these emotional highs. It's very dangerous to equate emotion 
with spiritual maturity. To be sure, we, we experience the mountain peaks where God gives us incredible joys and triumphs and victories, but do you know that the Christian life is not just filled with mountaintops? What else is in the Christian life? There are valleys that we walk through. And I'm concerned that some of us, in misunderstanding what faith is, may be thinking of faith like it's always supposed to be on the mountaintop when in the reality, many times, we go through the valley. What's needed at the mountaintop and in the valley is a slow, careful faithfulness that doesn't get off course because of circumstances we may find ourselves in. What Daniel exemplified in this passage was a slow and steady faith that was never deterred in the small things or in the big things. Um, Shelly's on the front row here. We, um, right now, are full bore into the Olympics. Any Olympic fans in here watching every single minute you can? We watch the opening ceremony. I didn't grow up with a family like this, but my wife loves it. So guess what, guys? What your wife loves, you love, Right? Uh, so 2008, we were married. We watched the 2008 Olympic Games, and kind of it's become a tradition for us. We were uh, one of the first moments that I remember us being married is uh, standing at the television, screaming at Michael Phelps, trying to will him to win all those Olympic gold medals. You guys remember that? It was a great moment. But one of the things that's interesting about the Olympics is all the different events. You've got a lot of people running. There's a lot of running going on. But there's a lot of different types of running. The two ends of the spectrum on running in the Olympics is you've got kind of sprinters, short distance runners, and then you've got your marathon people, right? Your short distance sprinter people, they're built differently, right? They're built for quick bursts of speed for just a moment of time, whereas your marathon runners are training to get to a sustainable pace over a long period of time. In the case of a marathon, 26.2, don't forget the point two, right? Point two miles. So that if you're watching a sprint, if you're watching a, a quick dash or a short run, if you get up for some popcorn, you can miss the whole race, right? It can be over that quickly. Whereas a marathon, a runner there is trying to get to a good pace, get to a fast pace, but hold that pace for hours on end. If it was me, it'd be several hours, by the way. Um, but that's what the difference is between a marathon runner and a sprinter. I'm concerned that at times, when it comes to faith, some of us are thinking about our faith in terms of sprinting rather than a marathon. God has called us to a faith that's not just a quick burst over just a little short experience, but he's called us to a longer faith that sustainably, slowly, and steadily trusts in the Lord. What I want to do in closing is I want to show you four reasons, four reasons why our faith needs to be slow, steady, constantly progressing, but recognizing that our faith is not resting on flash and feelings. It's resting on trusting in God slowly and steadily. Number one, I want you to notice in this passage that we can trust God slowly and steadily because of the promises He keeps. The promises of God are evident in this passage of Scripture. Back in verse 10, we read that Daniel had his window open towards Jerusalem. Now, why was Daniel praying toward Jerusalem? There's a lot of reason for that. One of the reasons I believe he was praying toward Jerusalem is because he was trusting that God had made some promises that he was going to keep. If you know your Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that after 70 years of exile, the people would return. 
And I believe what Daniel was doing as he was praying towards Jerusalem is he was praying and remembering the goodness and the promise of God. In fact, most commentators believe that when Daniel was alive here at the age of 85, it's very possible that even some of the first exiles were already starting to come back to Jerusalem. There was this guy named Zerubbabel, kind of important character in the Bible. He was a descendant of King David, a forerunner of Jesus, who takes the exiles out of the promised land, out of, excuse me, out of exile into the promised land. And it's very possible that Daniel was praying for many of those people by name as they were heading back to the promised land to rebuild a temple of praise. Consider, church, for a moment, that if you know Christ, you worship a God who makes promises. What is a promise? A promise is a commitment to act. A promise is a pledge to do something. So if I tell you, I'm going to promise to be at the church building here tomorrow at 9 o'clock. I'm committing myself to act. And here's what's incredible about God. God, the creator of the universe, could have sat back and left us to ourselves. Totally justified, completely in the right to leave us in our sin, to leave us in our deception, to leave us in all the muck and the mire of this life. But instead, we worship a God that said, I'm going to make a promise to you. Not just one promise, I want to make series of promises. God has made commitments to us to act. The most prominent of these promises is that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God has said to us that he promises that when we turn from our sin and turn towards our Savior, that he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us grace, mercy, and and forgiveness. How can I have a slow and steady faith that's not flashy, that's not built on feelings, that doesn't get deterred when things don't go my way? It's by remembering that God has made promises that he's going to keep. Number two, we also see in this passage of scripture the power of God. The power of God. Daniel was miraculously protected from lions. Now, lest we think that these lions were like lazy or lethargic or they weren't hungry, we know that's not the case because after Daniel's delivered from safety, those same lions destroy his enemies. So it wasn't that they weren't hungry. It wasn't that they were old and kind of in their latter years, their teeth all fell out or something. None of that's the case. These were ferocious animals that were designed for one purpose, to kill. And God sovereignly with miraculous power closes their mouths and protects Daniel. In fact, the scriptures are clear that Daniel comes out the other side without even a scratch on his body. He doesn't even have a scratch from head to toe with these fierce lions, though he was there all night. The power of God is important because when you think about the promises of God, at times, it's tempting to wonder, is God going to keep his promises? I'll be perfectly honest. When I look at the political landscape in this country, there are times when I say, Lord, I know that you're in charge, but it's hard to see how this is moving us towards your rule and reign. I have a hard time sometimes watching the news, right? Watching the, the horror that we see all around the world that feels like every time I look at my phone, there's an update of some terrorist attack in our world. And it's easy sometimes to wonder, are, is God and the promises that he's made, are those things going to come to pass? What keeps my slow and steady faith in Christ strong 
It's remembering that God hasn't just made promises. God has the power to keep his promises. There's not a promise that God has made to us that he will not keep. How can I have a slow and steady faith that's not deterred by circumstances? It's by coupling the promises of God with the power of God. Number three, we also see the presence of God. When we couple the promise and the power of God, one of the promises that God's always going to keep by his might is that he will never leave us or forsake us. If you read the entire book of Daniel, one of the things that happens is you see some, com- some uh, connection between the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, better known as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those three young men that were thrown into the fire. And we see a parallel experience with Daniel being thrown into a den of lions. In both cases, both in the fiery furnace and in the lion's den, God sends an angel to protect Daniel's three friends and Daniel. In fact, in chapter 3, when we read about the fiery furnace, that angel is described specifically as the angel of the Lord. Most people believe, when we read that phrase in the Old Testament, you're looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. And so what we read when we read about Daniel, that that God sent this angel to close the mouths of the lions. And we also read that both of these folks came out completely unharmed. The three boys came out with not a singe of smoke on them, and and Daniel came out with not a scratch on him. Here's the point. What God has promised us is that he will never leave us or forsake us. But what I want you to see is that the God that we worship has not promised us to always remove us from danger. God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. But what God has not promised us to do is to always remove us from danger. It's important for us to see this because it might be easy for some of us to read the book of Daniel and think, well, they got out of the fiery furnace. Daniel got out of the lion's den. If I just trust in the Lord, I'll never be harmed. I'll never be hurt. Whereas when we read the book of Daniel in light of the entirety of the Bible, what we know is that's not what the book of Daniel is trying to tell us. In fact, Daniel and his friends were actually put in some very difficult positions because of their faith. In fact, the Bible is replete with people who were killed in the midst of trusting God. Can you think of some examples of people that were killed in the midst of trusting God? I don't know, maybe the most important one that we should remember is Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus Christ trusted his Father every step of the way, and they killed him for it. Here's why I tell you that. There's a lot of really, 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 really bad teaching out there that says something like this. If you trust in God, you'll always be happy, you'll always be healthy, and you'll always be wealthy. If you trust in the Lord, you'll never get sick, and your wallet will always be full. In fact, there's even a more incipient form of this on TV, where if you trust in the Lord, plus send someone some money, you'll always have what you want. I've heard one TV preacher one time say, if you send me this $10 gift, you can have a Learjet just like me. And that teaching is based on this ideology that says, well, if I trust in the Lord, I will get. What we have to be careful of is recognizing that what God's promise really is. God's promise is to never leave us or forsake us, but not that he will remove us, 
God instead promises not removal. God promises to sustain us through difficulty and danger. God's promise is not removal, sweet church. God's promise is to sustain us. That's really important to me as your pastor because I know this morning some of you are walking in in a valley-like situation today. And in the valley, it's easy to wonder, has God forsaken me? Is God still with me, even in my pain, in my hurt, in this problem that I'm finding myself in? Is God there? The book of Daniel reminds us that God doesn't remove us from danger, but he always sustains us through it. How can we have a slow and steady faith? It's by remembering that God is present with us always. Number four, and finally, we see a pattern of redemption. A pattern of redemption, okay? I want to be careful how I do this, but there are some parallels here between the book of Daniel and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, okay? And these patterns aren't so much allegorical as it's just watching a pattern in the way God works and brings about redemption of his people. So think about Daniel's life. Daniel, wrongly accused, is thrown into a pit and left to be as good as dead. By all appearances, all occurrences, you're thrown into a pit of hungry lions, you're out. They roll what over this pit? A stone. Signet ring put on the stone. After a span of time, the stone is rolled away, and what is Daniel found to be? He's found to be healthy and whole, alive. It's as if God has resurrected him from the dead. God brings him out, sets his feet on a firm ground. He's put as the number two person in the kingdom at the right hand of the king. His enemies are destroyed underneath his feet and Gentiles begin to praise the true and the living God as we saw in Darius. That pattern of redemption is what we see from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Jesus too was wrongly accused, was taken to a cruel cross and hung in your place and my place for our sins. He died and was laid in a tomb with a stone rolled in front of it. Three days later, that stone rolled away and he resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father for you and for me. And now, now you and I, church, have not just been saved from something, we've been saved for something, we've been saved to take the good news of the gospel to the Gentile nations so that pagan kings like Darius can know of God's goodness and grace. This past week at Vacation Bible School, one of the great joys I have is getting to explain the gospel to kids. And that's not easy to do, especially younger ones, right? Because developmentally, it's hard for them to get their minds around some of the concepts of the gospel. But the, the thing that helps me the most, and parents, this is an encouragement to you as you talk to your kids about Christ, the, the concept that helps me explain the gospel to kids the most is the idea of substitution. Substitution. So the kids that I counsel with and talk with that were interested in knowing more about Christ, I, I told them a story, fictitious story, about an older brother and a younger brother. And this younger brother is rotten. I mean, he makes all the worst decisions. He steals. He lies to his parents. He talks back to them. He breaks his brother's toys. He's always starting stuff. He's just a, a bad little boy. And so the mom says, that's it. I've had it. You are getting a spanking. Anybody still spanking here but us? Email me later if you don't like that. But yeah, we, we still do. So spanking is going to be part of the story. Okay, go with me. If you don't do that, that's okay. Spanking. He's, he's going to get a spanking. 
And right before the mom gives him the spanking, the older brother walks in the kitchen and says, Mom, look, I know that my little brother did all these things and, and he made all these mistakes and made all these bad choices. And I know he deserves the spanking. But Mom, I want to take the spanking for him. Now, moms and dads, about this time when I'm telling a child this story, their eyes get about this big because they cannot imagine a brother or sister that would take their spanking for them, right? It's crazy. It's ludicrous that any sibling would do that for them. And then, of course, what I'm doing, I'm, I hook that back around and I say, this is what Jesus does for you. You and I have made bad choices. We've lied, we've stolen, we've disobeyed our parents, we've worshipped other gods. We deserve a penalty. Although our penalty is not just a spanking, our penalty is what we deserve is the wrath of a holy and just God. And Jesus Christ is that older brother who loves you, who loves me, who says, I know Spencer deserves this, but I'm going to take his punishment. And can I tell you one of the greatest joys of my life as a pastor is watching little boys and little girls go, Bing! Light bulb, where they say, wow, that's what Jesus did for me. Wow, that's how serious my sin is that Jesus died in my place. Wow, that's who God is. He's holy and just and perfect and has to punish sin, but he loves me enough to offer his son to, to do that for me. That's the God that we're talking about? Yeah. That's the same God who delivered Daniel. That same God this morning looks at you and looks at me and says, I'm holding out grace and mercy and forgiveness to you. How can we have a slow and steady faith that doesn't waver as circumstances change? It's by remembering that what God has offered us this morning is his goodness and grace. And because of his promise and power, it will never, no never, be taken from us. Some of you this morning are in some of the final laps of your life. Some of you know that. You have friends, loved ones, family members that are next to you that are, that are passing on to be with the Lord. And it's easy, as I talk to some of our older members, to say, for them to ask me, Spencer, I just don't know what my purpose is anymore. I don't know why I'm here. My body aches. I've got these problems. All I do is go to doctor's appointments. I, I don't know why I'm here. Can I tell you that what you need this morning, if you're in those final laps of your life, is you don't, what you're needing is not the next doctor's appointment to go well for you. What you really need is slow and steady faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's going to sustain you in those final laps is a slow and steady faith. I told you last week I've been privileged to watch people finish well, slowly, steadily, trusting the Lord not always flashy, it's not always easy, but trusting Him. Some of you are in a different phase of life. Some of you are in some of those middle laps. And if you've ever run a race, I think the middle laps are the hardest, right? Because you're not at the beginning, you're not at the end, you're at the humdrum middle. And you've got kids that are leaving for school, you've got older parents you're trying to help take care of, and you're probably, as I look across the sea of faces in this room, you're probably some of the busiest people that I know. And in your busyness and in some of the challenges you face, it's very easy to let your schedules determine your priorities, right? Rather than your priorities determine your schedule. It's really easy to get lost in the stress and the anxiousness of all the things you've got to do in those middle laps. But can I tell you what you need this morning? What you need in those middle laps is a slow and steady, constantly progressing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Some of us are in some of the earlier laps of the race, probably where I am. We're starting out, we're having kids, we're getting married, you're starting your job, you're finishing school, kind of at that beginning phase of life, and you're just starting those laps. And sometimes it's very easy, those beginning laps, to always be looking ahead, right? To be planning ahead, to be thinking about the next thing, and not be all there when I'm there, to not be present in the present. I used to think I knew what it meant to be tired, and then we had children. Uh, These laps are not easy either, right? Those of us in those early laps. But can I tell you what you and I need? It's not more me time. It's not our kids always acting perfectly and doing exactly what we asked them to do. What we need is a slow and steady faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one more group of people I just want to talk to as we close. Some of you this morning are not in God's race. You're doing your own thing. You're out here living your life. You're trying to figure it out yourself because you think you're kind of the main character of your own little story. What you need, what every one of us need, is to turn from you running your own race, your own way, doing your own thing, turn from that, repent from that, and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I can tell you that believing in Jesus will not make all of your problems go away tomorrow. If you want to know more about that, see a Christian in the room and ask them if they have problems. We do. But what God offers you is forgiveness from your sin, which you will find no other place than Jesus, and deliverance to a whole new life. A new identity that God calls you to as an alien and pilgrim, a child of the king in which he calls you to live a life by faith, not by sight. What you and I need to remember is the way that we finish well as aliens and pilgrims in this world is not by flashy, feeling-driven faith that's dependent upon the circumstances we find ourselves. No, what we need is a slow and steady, careful, plodding, moving forward faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Father, you're good to us, and we're thankful for your goodness and your grace. God, we're thankful that what Daniel exemplifies for us is a slow and steady faith in the Lord Jesus. God, I'm thankful for every person in this room. I pray that in some way, God, you've spoken to every single heart here. God, I pray that you would remind us that no matter what lap we find ourselves, beginning, middle, end, even those of us in here that are running our own race, what we need is we need you. So, Father, I pray for people in this room that are running their own race, that are doing their own thing, that are blinded in their sin to thinking that they're the main character of their story. God, I pray that you'd open their eyes, even now as I'm talking, even as these words are coming out of my mouth. God, would you open their eyes? Would you show them their need for you? And would they, God, I pray that they would repent, turn from their race, and trust you for salvation. God, for the folks here, for the precious saints that are among us that are at different laps, I pray that we would encourage one another no matter where we find ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you would instill in us a slow and steady faith in you no matter the season of life we find ourselves. God, would you be with us now as we declare your praises together. In Jesus' name we ask.